Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As we really focus on verses 37 through 41 this morning, uh, Acts chapter 2 Verse 37, we'll actually, even though your bulletin says verse 40, we'll actually move just into verse 41 probably as we look at the invitation that is given by Peter, an invitation that is continued to be given to us today, an invitation that has power and consequence in our life. Kenneth Latourette, a Yale professor, said this. He said, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What caused this release of energy? lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. But then he goes on to say, but before I'm a historian, I am human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural did happen? This is an individual historian trying to look at the work of Christianity and the movement in those first, uh, in those first few days of this fledgling faith. And he says there's something that just seems out of place. At least when you look, there's something that is that is that you need to notice about this extraordinary movement and the extraordinary success that they had. There's some type of what he called unequaled power that must have been there. And even though it would lie outside of the scope of his own study. He said, I am a human being, and when I look at this, I recognize there must be something supernatural. You know what? When you and I study the scripture, and when we see the, the day of Pentecost, we see Peter preaching in power, we see people responding through the invitation, there is no doubt in our minds that something special was happening and that there was a power unequaled in any other power that had ever been seen. That power was the power of God himself. That power was the power of the Holy Spirit who had come upon the people to be able to share and to preach and to proclaim. That power was the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which has the ability to change and transform people's lives. There is no doubt. And we come to this passage today thinking about that power and thinking about that work of God and noting again how he inspires people's responses. Well, every good sermon's got some type of invitation, some type. Every good sermon will call people to do something. I was trained in my preaching classes years ago that you always call people to do something. You do not just give a message just so that people's hearts are enlightened. You give a message that will move people to transformation and change in their lives. And certainly the invitation we see today is an invitation that called people to faith, to repentance, to receive what God was doing in their midst. Now, the sermon had been, 
had, had, had some heavy theological content. It was the gospel. It was the good news in a nutshell. In other words, before we get to the invitation, we have to know that the message needs some meat to it, right? It's not just a moment to be emotionally moved as much as I like to be emotionally moved. It's more than that. It is something that appeals to our reason. It is something that appeals to our heart. It is something that appeals to the very essence of who we are. And Peter is preached. And what has he said? Peter has said that God has affirmed this Jesus. He did it in his ministry, his earthly ministry and the miracles themselves. Jesus was affirmed by God. God had resurrected this Jesus, this Jesus who died. And he had, he had said unabashedly, he had said that they had killed him. And just as I spoke about last week, all of us participated in the death of Jesus because of our sins. And he said, but God resurrected him. God raised him. And now God has exalted Jesus at the very right hand of the Father. That was the message. The message had been preached. And look in verse 37. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When, when they heard the message of God, it says that they were cut to the heart. It was as though a dagger had been placed within their very being. I would call this conviction. Conviction. The conviction that came in the midst of the invitation. Conviction that was brought by the Holy Spirit of God. Conviction that was brought by God himself. As I was studying this week and thinking about conviction and thinking about this word cut, it, it, it means, according to one source, to experience acute emotional distress, implying both concern and regret. In other words, there was something, and yes, here in this definition speaks about some type of emotional distress that people will feel when they are cut to the heart, when they are cut to their very being. I did find as I was doing my study that it is an uncommon word. That word cut is an uncommon word that was used by the poet Homer that was used to describe the trampling of horses' hooves. In other words, the, the stomping, the beating of horses' hooves upon the ground. So get this image, this word picture, if you will. That when they heard the gospel, when they heard what Peter said, all of a sudden, it was as though their heart was, was being pounded. Their heart was being cut. Their heart was being stumped upon in some way. It was something that they could not ignore. Conviction. You and I have felt conviction before, I hope. And when I saw that word picture of the horse's hooves like beating against the heart... I thought to myself, man, that's a good word picture, not just for preaching. That is a good word picture to capture what I've experienced in my life when the Holy Spirit would come and convict me. Friends, I, I remember, I remember so vividly when God first dealt with me. I, I don't know if you do, and I hope you do, but I, I remember so vividly when God dealt with me. It was on a Sunday night, and I've explained it so many different times. But I remember as I had seen the gospel presented through baptism, the, the Holy Spirit just got a hold of me. And I didn't know what it was to start with. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I was kind of like, I'm, I'm 12 and I was feeling this inside and I felt like my heart was about to beat out of my chest. I, I was so concerned. I was about to say something to my mother, but you don't say anything in church. But I could just sense it. I mean, I, I wrestled with it. I, I was cut to the heart by the message that I had seen displayed. I went home that night. I got in my bed. And I mean, usually I could sleep so well. I mean, I, I kind of miss those days a little bit. Now, I still sleep pretty well. I still do. But I miss those days. Like when I was younger, like from 12 to like when I was 20, man, I could sleep. I could sleep 13 straight hours. And it wasn't because I'd done anything beforehand, really. It was just because of the way it was. I could just sleep. I loved sleep. I went home that night and I just struggled. I struggled with the Holy Spirit in my life. I, I, it was like I was in a wrestling match to some degree. I, I felt like old Jacob as he had been wrestling with God. And I mean, he was pounding my heart. And I thought if I could just make it through the night. If I could just get past this, it's going to lead me. It's going to lead me. Because I mean, I don't want... And the next day, and the next night, and the next day, and the next night. Can I get a witness? It was like God would not leave me alone. It was like he continued to cut my heart. It was like a, a, an army of horses were trampling upon my heart each and every day. Conviction. The people here had been cut to their heart. Why? Because they had been on the wrong side of the Messiah. They had been on the wrong side of God. They had not recognized that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah that God had attested to. They had actually killed him. Remember what Peter said? Peter said, you rejected him. You killed him. And now as they're hearing this, as, as, as God is making clear through the Holy Spirit's work in their life, they begin to sense, they begin to see that Jesus was who he said he was. And the conviction came. And look at the question. The question they ask. Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, <laughs> they experienced so much conviction in their life, they knew that something had to change. And they looked at Peter. I, I must have been an awesome moment, okay? He preaches a message. He tells them that they have to know that this one that God attested to was, Jesus, was Lord and Christ. And what do they, they say? Hey, what, what, what do I need to do? You know how awesome that would be for a preacher? Like to be preaching, somebody raise their hand, not to go to the bathroom or anything like that. Just raise their hand and say, hey, what do I need to do in order to be saved today? What do I need to do to get this right with God? Conviction had come in such a way that they knew that they had to get right with God. I, I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis says, we don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels to lay down our arms 
to surrender, to submit. God, we know, we, we've been convicted, we recognize what we have done, we know that we've fallen short, we know we've rebelled against you, but God, here we are. We're not fighting anymore. We're laying down our arms. God, you tell us what you want us to do. Because we submit and we surrender to you. Folks, I, I, I still believe God's word. I said this the other day in the gathering. I, I'm just crazy enough to believe that what God says in his scripture is true. And, and, I, and I'm crazy enough to believe that what God could do then, God could do now. Because I do not believe the power of God is, has been abated for one moment. I believe the power of God is just as real and just as strong as ever. And I'm going to tell you that I still believe that the Holy Spirit works in people's lives to convict them, to show them their sin, to get them to a point to where they are willing to lay down their arms and say, God, what would you have me to do? I believe the same God that got a hold of me and wouldn't let go is the same God that can get a hold of you and will not let go. That this God who has worked in so many of your lives and you've experienced that conviction that you know that he would care for you so much that he would not leave you alone. Here, the people were cut to their heart. They cried out, what shall we do? The conviction was there. And then, of course, the command came from Peter. Look at what it says. Peter looked at them and he said, verse 38, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he say to do? He says, repent. The idea of repent was a change of mind, a change of will, a change of life. It was a change in who you were. You were to change. You were to make a change. Obviously here, they were to change their mind about who Jesus was. Remember again, they were the ones who had rejected him. And now they were to repent of that and to change their mind and to recognize that Jesus was who he said he was. That Jesus was the Lord and the Christ. There in verse 36 that we looked at last week, remember he said, let all the house of Israel know by experience that in your personal relationship and who you are, you are to know with confidence that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So you're to change your mind about Jesus. You're to change your mind about who he is and the kingdom. Rolling Q level, who was president. Where are you, Dale? I thought you slipped out. You needed this message. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Kidding, 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 bud. Roland Q. Level, who was the president of the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, he said it is a reversal of one's thinking which will result in an alteration of one's way of living. It is a change or reversal of your thinking that will work its way out into your life. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not regret. It may begin with remorse and it may begin with regret, but it does not end there. 
Let's say this. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. I think we ought to have them for a Super Bowl party tonight. Wish I could find some. I love Krispy Kreme. Now, I'm not saying anything about any other of the local wonderful places, wonderful places. But I love Krispy Kreme. Let's say I eat three Krispy Kreme donuts. I enjoy myself. I, I, yes, I will. I will love that moment and that experience. But I'll prob- probably regret it afterwards. Especially when Leslie has her talk with me. <laughs> I will be very remorseful. I will uh, account for my ways. And I will recognize that it is not a good thing to eat three Krispy Kreme donuts at one time but I probably will not repent. (laughs) I will be remorseful. I will regret it. But I'm not going to change it. When three Krispy Kreme donuts introduce themselves to me again, I will probably engage in that relationship. And I will enjoy my Krispy Kreme. There's a difference. (laughs) I'm just going to say, I got to work on some cues for y'all amen in sometime, I think. (laughs) It may begin with regret and remorse, but repentance does not end there. There's got to be more. There are a lot of people that do things they're, they're sorry for. Especially when the consequences come. Especially when the consequences begin to rain down. They're, they're regretful for what they did. But repentance is turning. Repentance is changing. In the Old Testament, which again... These individuals who had been steeped in Jewish tradition, those who were there for the festival of Pentecost, they would have understood that Hebrew understanding of repentance. And it means turn. Turn. It is a change of mind. It is a change of will. But it is a turn. And even for religious people. Get this. These individuals had come on pilgrimage to worship God and to celebrate Pentecost. These are some of the most religious people you will find. And he says to them, you must turn. You must make a decisive break with what, is, what you've experienced previously. The old Moody said, man is born with his back toward God. When he truly repents, he turns around and he faces God. We as rebels, we as rebels have placed our back toward God. But when God comes in through the Holy Spirit and convicts us, and when we truly repent and turn, we turn back to him. This is what David was speaking about in Psalm 119, 59, when he said, I thought on my ways, and I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. David said, I thought about these things, and I thought about who I was, and I made a turn toward your testimony. And you and I, as we think about repentance in our lives, it is a turn. 
It is a turn away from sin, and it is a turn toward God. You turn away from, you turn toward. This is what Derek Prince, who used to teach at Cambridge University, said. He drew this word picture about man's journey away from God. He said this. In his own natural, unregenerate, sinful condition, every man that has ever been born has turned his back on God his Father and on heaven his home. In this condition, each step that he takes is a step away from God and from heaven. As he walks this way, the light is behind him and the shadows are before him. The further he goes, the longer and darker the shadows become. Each step that he takes is one step near the end, one step near the grave, near hell, near the endless darkness of a lost eternity. For every man that takes this course, there is one thing that he must do first, one essential act that he must make. He must stop. He must change his mind, change his direction, turn back, turn around, face the opposite way, turn his back to the shadows and face toward the light. This first essential act is called in Scripture repentance. It is the first move that any sinner must make who desires to be reconciled to God. Repentance. What must we do? Peter says, repent. Change your mind. Turn to God. Now, I do need to say this as well. Repentance is not penance. Penance is the idea that you are going to fulfill your ritual or your obligation so that you can find the favor of God. You and I will never find the favor of God through our obligations or our works. The only way we will find the favor of God, the grace of God, is through submission and surrender to who Jesus Christ is, to what he has done, and to his lordship. Because Jesus paid the price for us. It was the only price that could be paid to bring us salvation. Now, certainly it does work itself out into actions, right? Our repentance. I said that. I've I've at least intimated that through this message, I think, is that there is a change of mind There's a change of will, and it will be demonstrated in our works, in our actions. Later on, Paul will be preaching Acts chapter 26. Call it preaching, and this is what he says. He he says that these different ones, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. In other words, when you repent, you change your mind, it will work itself out. The inward change will become an outward change, not vice versa. You don't don't become uh, outwardly righteous without becoming inwardly righteous. God has to do an inward work within us. He says that comes through our repentance, a decision, a break with the old and a beginning with the new. And notice what he says in this command, repent and be baptized, be baptized. The word baptized means to be immersed, to be plunged beneath the water. Obviously, there was more to it than just being dunked. 
It was about professing your faith publicly in the Lord Jesus. That's what baptism was. It was a public profession. He says that you are to be baptized or you're to be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ. The word name, obviously, is synonymous with person. You could, you could say this. You're to repent, and then you are to be immersed in the very person of Jesus Christ. You are to allow him to consume you. Now, water baptism is, again, just a public profession of what God has done. We believe in what's called believer's baptism. That is, that only those who are believers should be baptized. Because when I read the New Testament, I'll read the book of Acts, there are 27 times that people are baptized. And every time, it is a new believer who is trusted in the Lord Jesus, who comes to submit themselves to water baptism so that they can publicly display their faith. He says, you need to be baptized. I have to be careful with this verse because it does say, for the remission of sins. And I have some friends who are out there that try to use this as a proof text. I will say to you that if you're trying to make an argument, proof text is not the best way to do it. But they try to use it as a proof text. See what it says? It says, it says you got to be baptized in order to be saved. But when you read through the testimony of the New Testament, that is not the consistent witness of the apostles in the early tradition. As a matter of fact, it was not through baptism that you were saved. It was through faith and through grace alone that you were saved. I always tell people that when you come to be baptized, there's nothing special about that water. It's, I usually look at children when they come to me, and I say, it's just like bathtub water. Hopefully it'll be just as warm when we put you in it. There's nothing special about that water that will save you it is only through your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus that you will be saved. Your repentance. Later on, Paul, or I mean Peter, that is, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he will say, there, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He said, Repent, and you'll receive that forgiveness of sins, not be baptized. Acts chapter 16, we'll look at it later on in this series, but Acts chapter 16 is the only time that the question is directly asked of salvation. Now don't get me wrong, there are other parts of scripture that teach us about salvation, but it is the only place where you have the question directly asked. It is the Philippian jailer looks at Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe. That word is faith. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's his promise. He didn't say you got to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, he did baptizing because baptism is very important because it declares to everybody what God has already done inwardly in your heart and life. Some of you look at that and say, what? But he didn't say repent. Repent and faith are two sides of the same coin. You repent and turn, but in that simultaneous moment, you place your faith in Christ. They were inseparable for the early disciples, the early apostles. 
you have faith. Well, how about this passage? It says that you're to do this for the remission of sins. Some of you, you've done a little study in this passage and you know that preposition for. It could be translated a lot of different ways. As a matter of fact, when I was in Greek class, there were some of those prepositions. You just had to decide on context because they could be used in so many different types of con terms or so. Different types of terms. This word here, as I was translating it, I would translate it something as, as a result of. Uh, that you are to be baptized as a result of your forgiveness of sins. Or it could be even translated based upon your forgiveness of sins. You're not forgiven because you're baptized. You're forgiven because you repent of your sin and you have faith in Christ. And then what does he say? The gift of the Holy Spirit will come to you as a new believer. So the command, repent. And yes, be baptized because baptism is important. I tell people it does not save you, but it is so important, is it not? Because in so many ways, it is the first step of your discipleship, of your identifying with Jesus. We're going to baptize in the next few weeks. Some of you, you may take issue with me on this, but that's okay. You can be wrong with it or whatever else. But I baptized yesterday, 11.30 in this sanctuary. So you say, well, you didn't send out an invitation. No, I didn't. There was a college guy that I'd been talking with and he had given his life to Christ. Oh, he, he came to me and he, he said, I was at the BCM here a few months ago. And you know, I didn't believe in God. I was an atheist. But somehow when I was there, because I was going to see what all was going on, but while I was there, the, it was like something happened in me. I said, yeah, well, was, yeah. He said, yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, something happened. I, I thought I was about to get emotional. I thought I was going to have to check my man card. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, he said, I went away from there and my thoughts were different and my life was different and everything about me was different. And I called one of my friends and I said, hey, something happened and I'm different. And the other guy said to him, said, man, did you get saved? And he said, what? He said, did you get saved? And then he began to work through what God had done. And for a couple hours, about two weeks ago, one night, I got to talk with him about a reason, faith. And last week, he had said, Dr. Reggie, I know I'm saved. I need to be baptized. My parents are going to be in town on Saturday. They can't, st but they're going to be in town. And I got a few other college guys. Could you baptize me? I said, you know what? <clears throat> The Bible doesn't say that it has to be like about 1,500 in order to have a public decision or public baptism. So you bring your parents and you bring those college kids and we're going to go right up here and we're going to baptize you. God's still in the business of convicting. God is still in the business of leading people to repentance and to baptism. Who does he call? He calls them all. 
For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It's not just a select group. He says, it's not just your nation and your identity, your ethnicity. He said, yes, it is for you as the Jewish people, but guess what? God's going to do even some more things. And you look in the book of Acts, he's going to extend that call to the Gentiles themselves. He says, it's to all. It's a call to all, and what a conversion. What a conversion. Look in verse 40, it says, with many other words he testified and exhorted them. In other words, he did preach a little longer message than what some of you probably think. He, He said a few other things, but Luke just captured the essence of the message. Peter told them some other things, and he encouraged them. He exhorted them, and he said to them, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation, this crooked generation. That word perverse or crooked, in the Greek it is the word scolios, which some of you are familiar. If you have scoliosis or so, you have a curvature of the spine there in your back. Same kind of word, it means that this generation seems to be crooked. This generation seems to be warped. This generation seems to be out of whack with God. But so have the generations before. Psalm 78 verse 8 spoke about a nation who was stubborn. A nation who would not listen to God. And those generations continue. But what Peter said is to be saved from that type of generation. Verse 41, again, this is a little farther than I meant to go, but I just feel like I need to share this one. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Those who received. Luke will use that word even in his gospel to talk about welcoming individuals. In the gospel, he'll talk about how the crowds welcomed Jesus back onto the shore. And here it is the idea that they hear the message and they welcome it. It's like they say, come on in. Take root in my life. Come in and take residence. They received it in such a way. Well, you and I know what it's like to receive and welcome people. And some of us know what it's like probably not to welcome people. You, you don't welcome those folks when they call you on your phone and they want to know about your credit card or your warranty, or right? But let's say your pastor calls you. You better say you're going to welcome him. They welcomed. They took in the message of Peter. They welcomed the word. And they were baptized. And it says about 3,000 were added. About 3,000 souls. Souls. I went back and looked at that word. It, It is the word soul. Their psyche. Their being. Who they are. The essence of their wholeness. They were immersed. They were baptized. 3,000 added. Where were we before? About 120 believers. You know what Acts chapter 1 told us? There were about 120 of them. 
You, you want to talk about some church growth? You, you want to talk about some church growth issues? From 120, 3,000 were added to them. Oh, what a day that must have been. Oh, I've been a part of some days you have been too. I remember my first pastorate at Canaan Baptist Church and I was preaching. There were 50 people there and I got through one Sunday and I thought I'd done the worst job ever, which is usually the case, the way I feel when I walk out of these places. And I looked up and people began to come down the aisle, that little church. About 50 there that morning, five came to receive salvation. I remember one of our deacon's wives saying, this is a red letter day in the life of Canaan Baptist Church. I didn't know what kind of letter, what color that letter was. I was just proud of God's movement. I remember when I was a youth and I was preaching a youth revival at Locust Grove Baptist Church in New Albany, Mississippi. And there were probably only about 70 there. And there were people from other churches who had come and 13 people walked down the aisle. But I can't imagine 3,000. They didn't have aisles like us. How did they do it? How did they know 3,000? They didn't have them fill out cards. <laughs> they knew they had about 3,000 because they baptized them. There were no undercover Christians who had just walked out. Those who believed had followed in baptism. And they were able to count them. They knew who had joined them. God still convicts. And maybe this morning, you've never given your life to Christ. You've heard people talk about it. You've heard me mention it. You've never given yourself to Him. But today you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. Folks, I never want people to come and do what the preacher wants or be manipulated by emotion or something. I want the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Maybe today you feel the Holy Spirit saying, you know that you've messed up and you know that you cannot do this on your own, that you need Christ, that you need a Savior. I ask you to come. I ask you to come. I ask you to come publicly. Just as Peter called forth for a public type of response. Some of you today, this sounds great. Reggie, I, I know I'm saved. Well, I say to you, praise be to God then. Don't ever take it lightly. Because it cost our dear God his own son. Never take your salvation lightly. But today, maybe there are things in your life that you've been regretful for that you have remorse over, but you never have really repented of. Some stuff going on right now that you need to come and say, God, I'm sorry. It's not getting saved again. It's just coming to the parent who loves you so much and saying, I want to see this relationship restored because I'm sorry I've walked away. Sorry I've done what I've done. I repent of that. I changed my mind and want to walk with you. Would you hear him today? Would you follow him? Maybe today you, you need to come and say, hey, I know I've been saved. I just need to be baptized. I want everybody to know. Would you hear him?
Would you respond during this invitation? Let's pray together. Father, how in debt we are to you for the provision you made through, for us through your Son. Father, how grateful we are that you call us. Your Holy Spirit speaks to us. Because we know, Lord, we couldn't have done it on our own. We couldn't have just made up our mind unless we had first been convicted and known what you had done and what we had done. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit's conviction. God, I pray for the one that is lost. I don't care what age they are. I don't care, Lord, whether they're 8 or they're 80. I pray that you would stir their hearts and lives and lead them to salvation. God, for some of us who are saved, God, we need to get some things out of our lives. We need to repent. And God, I pray that you would give us courage to do that today. Anoint this invitation with your power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?